This is Faster, a podcast by Flow Cycling. In each episode, we interview industry experts to educate you, challenge you, and even change the way you train so you become faster. Fat max is a popular topic amongst endurance athletes. While it's a great number to improve, there's a false belief forming that carbs are the enemy. The truth is, is in order to perform at our highest level, we need to fuel our bodies with carbohydrates. The brilliant Scott Tindall from Fuelin joins us again for a fascinating discussion on training your body to use carbohydrates for your race. Along the way, we cover lots of details on carbs versus fat, carb loading, and the types of carbs to consume. Listen to this episode to learn how to use carbs to your advantage so you can become faster. When we're not creating this podcast, we're working on other ways to make you faster. At Flow, we design and manufacture some of the world's fastest cycling wheels that we sell consumer direct to keep more money in your pockets. As a special thank you for listening to Faster, we wanted to offer you 20% off your next purchase. Simply use coupon code PODCAST in all capital letters at checkout. Your purchase will also support our Give Back initiatives. 1% of all sales supports our Bike for a Kid program, where we provide bikes and helmets for kids in need. We also plant one tree for every wheel we ship as a thank you to our planet. Enjoy the show. Scott, welcome back to Faster Man. We're happy to have you back on for round two. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Excellent. So those of you who have not heard our first podcast with Scott over from uh, Fuelin, we have a great episode with him about his app and some of the cool stuff he's been doing uh, over there. And he is an uh, uh, expert in, in nutrition and many things. And we have him back on today to talk about the concept of racing with carbohydrates and the idea of you know, using carbohydrates and, and high concentrations of them to perform. There's been a lot of things that have been going around recently about FatMax. We've got other great episodes on here, uh, one recently with UNLV on the energy systems, which talks about FatMax and a number of other things. We've got other uh, stuff here. I'll add some links to the show notes for you guys to sort of get caught up if you're hearing some of this and saying, hey, I'm not uh, quite sure what that means. We've got some other great episodes to cover, cover you. Um, but one of the things we want to talk about today is I think there's a bit of a misconception and, and Scott and I have been talking about this is, you know, while you can, you know, increase your fat max, if you're going to jump into a race and you're just going to solely concentrate on fat, you're not going to use any carbohydrates, you're going to, you're going to get a bit of a, a shocker. So uh, Scott's here to help us walk through that. And uh, yeah, that's great. So before we start, let's Scott, uh, have you been, man? How, how are things with you? Uh, it's been pretty good. Um, yeah. As you said, Johnny, I think like, um, you know, what, what hopefully we will cover today is a little bit of the misconceptions and just, you know, show that you can improve maximal fat oxidation, improve, you know, your fat max and whatnot, but you need to understand that it's not like black or white and that there, there is yeah. the possibility of doing both. And certainly using carbohydrates in a race situation is recommended if you want to go fast. Yeah. Um, Hey, what's been happening? It's been very wet in Australia. That's what's been happening. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if you guys get the news over there, but uh, yeah, we've had, I don't know, everything seems to be 100-year storms these days. Wow. Um, so yeah, we've had like, you know, metres and metres of rain dumped in sort of the eastern seaboard of Australia. And a lot of people, unfortunately, have lost, uh, you know, their livelihoods and their homes. So it's been uh, it's been pretty tragic, sort of, a couple of years oh, with uh, bushfires and COVID and now the floods. So, uh, wow, man. But, well, that, uh, it's, it's so dry over here right now. You guys are getting all our rain. That explains it, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the whole La Nina and El Nino uh, sort of um, uh, phenomenon, isn't it? So just sort of yeah, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere reversal of uh, weather patterns. So. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's pretty much what's been happening. Uh, so little one's uh, six months old. I think last time we spoke, I just had a baby. Um, yeah, you did. So he's yeah, six months old and just ticking along, really, keeping us all busy. Yeah. Gotta love it. You gotta love the new ones. Like we have one that's uh, just over a year old, so we're uh, we're very similar there, man. It's uh, we're very close. Right now, it seems like this huge difference, but in like ten years, it's not going to matter or anything. They're going to be the same age. <laughs> that's what I always no, no, so, so. That, that's been happening and then uh, Fuel In and it was great. I think when we first caught up, Fuel In was just sort of getting going with the iOS app. I don't even think we had an iOS app at that point in time. Um, it's just been going from strength to strength and, uh, you know, more and more teams and more and more athletes are getting on board and it's, it's just great to see people utilising, you know, p- nutrition driven by science and with a purpose and that's what we're all about. I love that. So for people that didn't hear the first episode, brag on yourself just a little bit. You've got quite the background, man. You work with a lot of great people, a lot of great teams. Tell them a little bit about yourself. Um, obviously, I'm Australian and uh, my background was physiotherapy. I did a master's in sports medicine and a postgraduate diploma in performance nutrition. Uh, been lucky enough to live in five countries around the world and work with a number of sporting organisations um, and sporting codes, so from professional rugby, uh, professional cricket, uh, rowing, professional sailing with the America's Cup, uh, Team Oracle, uh, Toronto Maple Leafs in Canada uh, with ice yes, hockey sir. or hockey, and, uh, <laughs> and then uh, Ironman with a number of professional athletes. Um, over the past couple of years and it's um, yeah it's my my passion now is way more into nutrition and that's where I really focused my attention over the last five to six years and uh, yeah that that has resulted in developing a company called Fuel In which uh, provides uh, performance nutrition programs for triathletes and endurance athletes and it syncs in with today's plan and with training peaks so whatever your coach delivers to you, you receive a plan that is adapted to your exact training program. So it's not a PDF, it's all done um, through a mobile phone-based app and it's very agile and um, so far the feedback's been amazing. All right, so let's talk about this whole carbs versus fat 101 thing. So I think, you know, there's there's some things, if we define them, you know, there's the idea of what low, you know, there's low carb, but what is low carb? And what isn't low carb, I think, is the most important thing. So we've got uh, ketogenic diet, which is low carb, but then you think of something like fat max. So what's you know what are the differences, and how do you define uh, all of those different things? Yeah, I, I think it's really important to provide some definitions, and even these definitions are a bit convoluted in the literature. So we'll do our best to get through it. So if we talk about the classical ketogenic diet that was developed in America in the Mayo Clinic in 1921. And what that did was restrict protein to one gram per kilo body weight and carbohydrate to just 10 10 to 15 grams per day uh, with the remainder of the calories from fat. Now, the efficacy of this diet was found to be in epilepsy. And also around the same time, they were using it to prolong the lives of, you know, type 1 diabetes uh, patients. And... The ketogenic diet can be defined as any diet that amplifies ketogenesis, so the production of ketone bodies. Um, Nowadays, 
you know, a diet with less than 50 grams of carbs. So probably around 5% of total energy intake from carbohydrates with about 15 to 20% of protein. And then the rest coming from fat is generally accepted as a ketogenic diet. So the, the key thing with a ketogenic diet is a very high proportion of fat in relation to carbohydrates. And I think now it is generally accepted that 50 grams or less per day will be defined as a ketogenic diet. Okay. I think that makes some sense. Um, what about like fat max or, and, and like maximal fat ox- oxidation? How do you, how do you define that? <clears throat> so I think with, well, firstly, if we talk about maximal fat oxidation, so the purpose of why people consider doing a ketogenic diet is that Adaptation will take somewhere between three and four weeks, but possibly could be around five to 10 days. And that's been shown to improve maximal fat oxidation. And I think when we get into maximal fat oxidation, um, you know, this is defined as the regulation and the utilization of fatty acids in in a maximal capacity occurring primarily at exercise intensities between 45 and 65% of VO2 max. And so it's really important to think about that as well, because as soon as you you look at the definition, when is maximal fat oxidation going to occur? It's going to occur in fairly low intensities, because that's then going to drive you to how you potentially improve maximal fat oxidation, i.e. going fairly slowly. Okay. So then if we look at fat max, that is sort of the maximum amount of fat that is being burned um at a before you get into that 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 crossover point right so where that crossover point is well yes and no fat max is probably more defined as the speed or the intensity at which maximal fat oxidation occurs so your maximal fat oxidation is measured in grams per minute so that's the total amount like that's the measurement of how much fat you're doing fat max is sort of when does that occur? So when does your fat max occur? Uh, does, okay. does that make so sense? I'm, I'm, yeah, it does. And I'm thinking like there's a crossover point, like you're basically burning primarily fat <clears throat> up into a certain point when you flip into the carb burn. Well, um, defi- let's define crossover points. So this is the point where fatty, fatty acid oxidation reaches maximum and then begins to decline as carbohydrate oxidation begins to dominate. So if if you think about those three terms, so your maximal fat oxidation is the maximal capacity to use fatty acids at an exercise, certain exercise intensity between like 45 and 65%. Your fat max is when that occurs. And then the crossover Mm -hmm. point is that point where you reach fat max and then you start to drop off. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes some sense. And, and just so, so everyone understands that as well, you can't just like say, oh, that's my fat max. Like it's done with a metabolic cart. So okay. you would go and get tested. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, you wear a mask, they measure your carbon dioxide and your oxygen, you know, oxygen consumption, carbon dioxide output. And then it's measuring that every, you know, depending on the unit, every few seconds and giving you an output, a graph and a reading and, the, the physiologist that you're working with will be able to talk you through the results after that. So I had a VO2 max test at one point. Somebody said, oh, you're, you're a carb burner. 
you're primarily a carb burner. And they say that sometimes they look at it and they see that somebody's primarily a fat burner. Is, is that, I mean, is that even accurate? I mean, eventually you're going to hit that crossover point if you're doing a VO2 max test, right? I mean, you, you can't, you can't burn fat that whole test. So why would somebody say carb burner versus fat burner? So that then relates to what they call a respiratory quotient. Okay. So this is what we're talking mm -hmm. about, the carbon dioxide and the oxygen. Um, so it's done as a ratio. Um, and the number of like, so fat is around 0.7 and carbs. Yeah. If your number is one or above, you're purely using carbohydrates. So what you want to see is that number being closer to 0.7 when you start and you're at rest. So if you're doing a resting yep. metabolic rate, you want that number to be closer to 0.7. Yep. And then you want to see that number gradually increase as exercise intensity increases. And eventually it will get to one or above one. Um, and that's sort of a measure of how efficient you are at using fat and carbohydrates during a test as exercise intensity increases. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. I see what you're saying now. So if we look at the science behind carbs as a fuel and fat as a fuel, can you walk through the differences and how they're, they're both consumed <laughs> as fuels? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? With, with all of this, it's like, is it, is it theory? Is it science? And I think there's enough scientific literature these days to say that the, the research behind carbohydrate utilization at higher intensity is fairly established. And so I think like everyone needs, <clears throat> sorry, everyone needs to sort of just step back a little bit and just say, okay, what does the science actually say? And it, it is pretty categoric in terms of saying, if you want to go at a certain percentage of your maximum capacity, then carbohydrates are going to be the fuel choice, um, the preferred fuel choice. And I, I don't think anyone okay. can argue with that these days. Um, so, I mean, look, it's all about oxygen delivery into the mitochondria and then the availability of either carbohydrates or fat as a fuel substrate um, or a fuel choice. And, and that fuel choice is the primary purpose of that is to resynthesize ATP for muscular contractions. So yep. you, you know... It's not like a switch though. And this is the thing as well that always makes me laugh. And I think even when you read the literature and you read through textbooks, it's like, oh, okay, it's 65%. Um, that's when it's going to all suddenly switch over. And before that, you only use fat. Or as soon as you hit 65% of your VO2, you're going to use carbohydrates. And it's just not the case. Like it's a continuum and there's like this paradigm shift as the body goes from utilizing fat as a fuel source into using carbohydrates as a fuel source. Yeah. That's one of the things when we talked about with uh, UNLV, it's one of the things was another common misconception, and I know it's a bit off topic, but it's the idea around lactic acid buildup. And it's like yeah. people think that they only, they only create lactic once they hit a certain point, but you're always producing lactic. It's just your ability to basically flush that lactic from the system. Once you're above that point, then the, the lactic acid starts to build and that's why you feel the burn, which I, I thought was, you know, fascinating to learn. So well, you're, yeah, I mean, lactic, like, lactic's a fuel source. You know, yeah, it's, it it's your inability to use lactate as a fuel source that then causes the increase in pyruvate and it's pyruvate that causes stuff to go wrong. Like it, yeah. it's not actually the lactate so much. It, it's more the byproduct. Yeah. Okay, which, which, so, is, which is great to know. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
and that's again that was a, another thing for me that's the first time i'd ever heard that you know lactate was used as a fuel source but i mean the energy systems are fascinating and that's why you know i think this this episode is is pretty pretty important because i think there's there's just so much uh, misinformation out there today about you know even even the idea of like hey i'm going to be convert myself into a fat burner it's like they don't think that they need carbohydrates or burn carbohydrates it's just not it's just not the case yeah. So, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, if you're a endurance athlete for higher intensities, anything over 65% VO2 max really is when carbs become your best fuel source, right? Yeah. And look, I mean, again, that 65%, like, I mean, what would 65% be for you in terms of heart rate? Oh, do, you, do you know? Like, I, it's, I mean, pretty, it's to... pretty low. Like, I'm old. <laughs> like, I'm 40, yeah. what am I, 43. Like, 65% of my VO2, like, in terms of heart rate, it's really low. And so you're like, wow, is that when it switches over and I'm actually primarily using carbohydrates? Like yeah, it, I mean, I think my my via, or my heart rate max was uh, 198. Yep. And so you think of 65% of that, I mean, take 30% off that roughly, you're down into the... We're down to 130s, I think, somewhere in that range, roughly. Yeah, yeah, right. It's not, I mean, um, yeah, I it's mean, not high. No, that's that's crazy. Yeah, 130. So that's that's low to be shifting over to um, over carbohydrates. Yeah. So and and that's the point is like, you know, with all of this, like carb, your carbohydrate stores are not finite, and thus, you know, the whole point of this is strategies to spare what we call. And again, I'm assuming a little bit of knowledge here in terms of what we call endogenous carbohydrates. So that's like mm. your stored carbohydrates or glycogen. And, you know, by using strategies to spare that endogenous carbs is one way of improving exercise at high, high intensity. So when I know we're going to talk about this, this can involve like carb loading. It can also, you know, you can also improve the ability of the athlete to ingest exogenous or um, consumed like external carbs. So think gels, liquids, blocks, things like that. And mm -hmm. that whole process involves training the gut to cope with the amounts and, you know, improve the athlete physiologically. And, and okay. you know, you're changing the perception in the brain, but you're also changing what's actually happening inside like the small intestine and the gut. And so yeah. you, you've, you, in order to utilize carbohydrates for a sustained period of time, you need to train that. And, you know, in terms of carbohydrates, you talk about why would you use carbohydrates? I mean, there's just so much evidence to support improved sustained power, speed, pacing, perception of effort um, that, you know, it, it doesn't make sense if you want to go fast in a race that if you don't use carbohydrates, you're sort of having one. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one thing I do want to talk about in some more detail here is, is the, the idea of, of preparing the guy. I think you guys are doing some really cool stuff with that. Um, and I think, but before we get there, I think one of the things to, to cover first is sort of this idea of the carbohydrates that people consume. I mean, there's so many different types of carbohydrates. And one of the things that we talked about before was the idea of this, single source versus multi-source carbohydrates first can you just kind of describe the different carbohydrates uh, from a singular pers perspective and then why there's a benefit to consuming something from a, a single source versus a multi-source maybe in the beginning yep um so everyone knows glucose uh, well they should know glucose and it's like your simplest <laughs> form of carbohydrates it's what we call a monosaccharide and 
So it, it's the one that was studied primarily, you know, way back, um, I don't know, in the 20s, all the way back to the 20s and whatnot, where that was the simple sugar that was used as the primary fuel source um, by athletes. And so there was a, um, a what would you call it, a, a point at which the system was flushed with that and it couldn't use any more glucose. Um, and that's dominated by what we call there's type, two types of transporters. So you've got what we call glute, uh, glucose facilitative transporters or what people might know as GLUT1. <clears throat> there's GLUT1, GLUT2, all the way through to GLUT7. And then you have sodium-like glucose transporters, and that relates to the transport of sodium and glucose across the cellular membrane as well. So glucose is one of those simple sugars that, again, can become saturated. So that's probably the most important point around glucose is, and, and that saturation point is around 60 grams an hour, 60 to 70 grams an hour, depending on the individual athlete. So if you are only using 60 to 70 grams of carbs per hour, then potentially glucose or maltodextrin could be your single source of carbohydrate and you may be actually fine with that. Oh, okay. So you're saying that from a single source perspective, there's a saturation point with glucose and, and maltodextrin at around 60 to 70 grams. Yeah, that, that's the whole point of this. Oh. That, that's where multi, multi-type transporters or multi-carbohydrate transporters, the concept came from. Because effectively what happens is it passes through the gut, it goes, well, it goes in the mouth, it comes down into the gut, the gut processes it mechanically, it's then pushed into the small intestine. The small intestine is where the magic happens and that's where all these transporters sit and that's what pushes the glucose into the blood system. So if that becomes saturated because there are no more transporters, then you need to look at, okay, is there a possibility of getting more carbohydrate through the system and the only way we can do that is by using another form of carbohydrate. Okay, so let's talk about the other two you got here. So, so what, what was your well, what was your perception? What were you thinking? That, because that's always in. I find that interesting. What people thought was happening. You know, I, I guess what I what I thought was, you know, when you think about from a carbohydrate perspective, you know, I just see a bunch of stuff that's that's listed on the label. You know, and I think that <laughs> you know it's like, hey, well, there's this one and this one. I, I sometimes ask myself the question, well, like, well, why is all this stuff on there? If you know, if you just eat a piece of fruit, or you just take like fructose or you know something like that at some point there's a saturation point which i just wasn't aware of i thought in some ways carbohydrates are carbohydrates but the fact that you're using a multi source because you're getting saturated point that allows you to increase that level so that yep. that makes sense to me at this point so okay you, so yep so you have mul so, maltodextrin which is just another form of glucose but it's a highly processed form of like through a process called hydrolysis so it's like a white powder you often see yep. that in there <clears throat> that's that's fairly um fairly well tolerated as well um and then you have fructose and fructose again is an isomer of glucose um but the structure is slightly different and it's like a really well it's the the sweetest naturally occurring sugar but mm -hmm. the thing about fructose is that it uses a different transporter called GLUT5. And so because it uses a completely different transporter, it can then 
work its way across that cellular membrane as well and be used as a multi, multi-transporter multi type of carbohydrate. And it's important to note, though, that fructose will slow down the rate of gastric emptying and the, the, the transfer of fructose across that cellular membrane is generally a little bit slower. So there is an important consideration there because if you take in too much fructose, that's when GI distress can often occur. Oh, so if you're going to use a multi-source, which is why, yeah, sorry, would be on. the higher percentage. The fructose would be a smaller percentage. Correct. So you because, see on all the okay. packaging, you'll see on all the packaging, two to one glucose fructose. You'll see that two semicolon one. And they, they'll market okay. that because the ideal ratio from a marketing perspective is two to one. But to be honest, there doesn't seem like I was hearing, I was listening to, I can't remember who I was listening to the other day, and they were explaining that there is no, the research behind that is actually fairly flimsy in terms of two to one. It's just based around what could happen because then you have sucrose and sucrose is another form of carbohydrate. It's table sugar. So table sugar is a disaccharide, i.e. two types of carbohydrate, a one-to-one ratio of glucose to fructose. Now you can use table sugar in your own home drink mix and a lot of people are completely fine with that and that's a ratio of one to one of glucose to fructose so you could just use that at home and then sprinkle in some salt and you'd probably be all right as well as long as you get the concentration right and you don't go too high if so that and that's what you're saying this the research being flimsy around this two to one is because people can use sucrose at one to one what yeah, if you, you were can. to go to something like three to one or like five to one? Is that just too much? Is it, is it does it of not work glu- because you glucose to sucrose? Yeah, does that not work because you can like only glucose to fructose? Yeah, because yeah, you can only get like sixty to seventy, you know, grams per hour of uh, glucose. So you would just, I mean, you you wouldn't pick up enough if it was like a four to one or five to one ratio, right? Well, that that's the point, isn't it? So then it comes okay, down to yeah. the ratio because then you're saying, okay. If you put in, you know, let's say you put in 70 grams of glucose, then potentially you could have another 35 grams of fructose for a say. Okay. And looking at so that let's and getting say, that up. So let's say that somebody wants to use like, uh, you know, they, and I think what you talk about, when you start to talk about like training to take these in, right? Talk a little bit about your, your theory around <laughs> training the gut. Because most people, I have seen so many people do this. They go to a race, they get in a race, and they're like, oh, I had gut issues. I had gut issues. (laughs) And I ask them the question. I say, like, well, did you – what did you take? Well, I just took this the on-course nutrition. And I'm like, have you ever used that before? And they're like, no, I've never used that before. I'm like, well, why do you think you had a gut issue? Like, you're not even used to it. Like, your body needs some sort of training and adaptation. So talk a little about how you do that with the app and just your general theory on it. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say that it was my theory about carbohydrate uh, gut training, but uh, fortunately, there's a lot more smarter people out there than me. Um, it, it Look, it, it's a pretty simple concept. I mean, and when you, again, when I, like I was talking to some pro athletes the other day about this and you talk about the, like their race strategy and they're like, oh, I don't really have one. And it's only when you talk back, at, when you talk about it in retrospectively that you start to go, wow. What am I doing? And if you are not practicing what you intend to do in a race in training at some point in time, then you're really asking for trouble 
if you don't have what you're going to do in a 70.3 or an Ironman dialed in to the point where you're like, okay, I am consuming this product at this point in time and I have a plan as to how many carbohydrates per hour I'm going to be consuming and what that looks like. It's like, I, I just honestly, it blows my mind that that people yeah. are not doing that. And so the process of gut training is simply as that. Like, okay, put it in a real, real world situation. Most triathletes um, who are age groupers are going to do their long session on a Saturday. Now, yeah. that is predominantly going to be a long bike ride with hopefully some sort of short runoff. Now, it's usually the runoff that, causes the most issues running is generally where everyone will get their gi distress you you don't hear too often of an athlete getting you know lots of gi complaints on the bike because they're in a very stable position it's only when they get into the run they start to complain and then they develop either upper or lower gi distress so when you talk about gut training like it's a, it's a discussion with your coach to say can we put in sessions that are at race pace that will require me to fuel appropriately, i.e. it's an intensity of at least, you know, 65, 70% VO2. I want to push the pace. Therefore, I want to use carbohydrates. Therefore, I need to start to practice using those carbohydrates on the bike and the runoff. Don't just do a 10-minute runoff or a 20-minute runoff and not practice that runoff the bike because it's the carbohydrates that you consumed on the bike are then going to be in the gut and you're still processing them as you get off and you start to run and then you've got that additional mechanical stress on the body, i.e. the bouncing up and down, that you need to then work out, can I cope with what I consumed on the bike whilst I'm now on the run? Yeah. So then if you're going to start training, is it good to start with like let's say I have, I have no experience with you know taking yep. in a certain amount of carbs per hour. Do you want to start with a single source, or or do you want to start with a multi-source? Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely start with a single source. I think uh, okay. so. You know what we do is um, athletes will uh, we're big into like you know testing and getting data points for the athletes so they can start to learn what they're actually doing. So you know encourage. And it goes with hydration as well. So, you know, record yourself before a session, record yourself uh, in terms of body weight, record your weight before the session, record your weight after the session. Uh, note down what you drank uh, in terms of fluid consumption. And then you're also noting down what you actually consumed in terms of carbohydrates on the bike and also on the run and splitting that up. So you would, you would definitely start with, you know, and more often than not, what we see is athletes are like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm great with carbs. I, I eat them all the time. And then it turns out they're eating 32 grams an hour and they've done a three-hour bike ride at 65, you know, at, at race yeah. pace. And you're like, well, yeah. <clears throat> 35 grams an hour is not very much. And they're like, oh, but I felt like I was eating the whole time. And it's like, well, how often did you eat? And they're like, oh, every 40 to 60 minutes. And it's like... That's not really going to do the job if you really want to push, you know, this consumption of carbohydrates and maximize your potential to go as fast as possible. Yeah. So what's a good source of uh, a single source of carbs for somebody to start with? What's easy for them to, to get in and, 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 and start to train? Uh, I mean, there's, there's plenty of glucose type, you know, gels out there that are single source. I, I probably won't go into any particular um, products. I mean, 
what what was one that someone said to me the other day? Um, Coda. Coda is a brand in Australia yeah. and, the, and one of the athletes here is using it. I personally don't like it and I know we're going to talk about palatability, but like yeah. I, I had it and I was like, I tried it and I nearly gagged and I wasn't even exercising. Um, so <laughs> there is a massive personal preference here with gels and blocks. Um, yep. You know, what you might find you know, lovely to consume, you know, for the next five hours, I might find absolutely terrible. So I think looking at, you know, and that's part of gut training, isn't it? It's like working out what products you can actually foresee yourself and actually practice consuming for an extended period of time. Because if you can't do that, then it's no good to you anyway. Is there is there any way to like make something naturally? I know a lot of the packaged gel stuff or blocks or things like that, they're they're very like processed and manufactured. Can you get a, a natural form of this? Could you like get honey or like agave or, or some type of maple? Is there any way to do something like that? Um, look, you could use maple syrup. I wouldn't recommend honey um, just because it's so thick and probably very sticky. Um, maple syrup, uh, Endurance Tap does one and maple syrup is a naturally occurring sucrose. So it's got glucose and fructose in it. Um, yeah. It, it works very well. Uh, a lot of athletes we work with use endurance tap. It's also got a very uh, what low. I always get this wrong. Low viscosity, so it's very liquid. Yeah. So it's it literally just goes down. You know the hole. Um, you can squirt it down there, and it it's very easy to drink. And a lot of athletes are actually what we've been doing more recently is putting uh, gels in a bottle, so that they're not having to rip you know, the packets of gels anymore, they actually just put them in their bottle on their bike. So one of the bottles on their bike will actually be full of gels. So we'll contain around 22 to 24 gels and that will get them through the pretty much the entire race. Um, so it's just yeah. time management as well. And that, that's part of practicing gut training is like, how can you deliver that carbohydrate as quickly as possible? You know, not just internally, but externally, like what's the simplest process to get those carbohydrates in? And that's all part of yeah. practicing it in training. I like it. So let's go back to this palatability thing, right? Because I mean, yeah. there's a lot of times I'm on a, you know, if I'm on a bike and I'm riding, sometimes things sound like they, I mean, I, I just crave like potato chips every time I'm on a bike. That's what I crave. Uh, not really a, a, a sugar source, but I find, you know. The well, they're, they're potatoes, get, the aren't they? They are potatoes. They are so. good. <laughs> <laughs> they are good. But I, so what is it? And how important is the palatability piece? Because I know certain people, like like you say, that even the thought of certain things makes you want your stomach more to turn. So I'm assuming finding that right mix uh, is is really important to this training component. Yeah, and and so what I'd say with the palatability is like the texture. So the texture of the gels or the blocks, if we're talking, yeah. you know, using those as a fuel source. Um, that that's incredibly important because if you if you physically can't swallow it then you're going to have all sorts of problems i think the taste profile um i think the reason products like uh morton and precision hydration and even sis um and certainly endurance tap are doing well is well you know those first three are very nondescript in their taste profile and i think that's a really good thing for companies to think about is like stop trying to make like these like super sweet tropical flavors and just bring yeah. it down to something that is very like as the sweetness profile is quite limited, the taste profile is quite limited and it's just about, it's with purpose. Like 
you're not out there like to enjoy the gel. <laughs> and I mean no. that in the nicest possible way. <laughs> like it is for a purpose. And th this comes back to, you know, what you were talking about. Gut training is like something we talk about with all our athletes is like, what is the purpose of your training? If the purpose of your training for that bike, that run or that brick session is to prepare yourself for a race, then why aren't you practicing your race nutrition during that training session? Because if yeah. that is your purpose, that's what you need to think about. Like every time you do a session, what is the purpose? Is the purpose here to improve, you know, maximal fat oxidation? Am I doing it in a potentially, you know, low, although we'll talk about that later, low carbohydrate sort of um, or glycogen sort of state? And am I just going slow? Am I improving the ability to, you know, for mitochondria to work, so on, so on? Or am I actually pushing things along at race pace and working on that? And that that's probably got to be the, the number one question I would push on every athlete to then think about why they're doing what they're doing. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So let's say that we've done the gut training we found something that's, you know, is palatable for us. We like it. We're getting up to a more reasonable level. What is a, what is a reasonable number of carbohydrates per hour for someone uh, to consume during a race? Yeah. So again, like if you read through the literature, again, there's a lot of stuff and there's a little bit of conflict. And I think people, I think initially for females, I'd work on, and for females and males, I'd work on a grams per kilo um, per hour first and foremost yeah. so for women you aim for around 0.8 grams per hour and for men you want to aim at you know ideally one gram per kilo per hour so wow. if if you're a, if you're a male athlete like in your 75 kilos which is what 100 and 160 pounds mm -hmm. yep yep roughly right around there so you want to be aiming for around that 70 75 grams per hour as an absolute minimum Okay. That's where I'd be going. So you can see immediately like that whole 60 grams an hour is like already bypassed. So for female athletes, 60 grams an hour could be a really good starting mark. For men, you may already want to be going above that. Now, again, like I don't have any issues with my gut when I'm running or, or training. So I immediately use a multi-transporter. So my, my gel of choice, and again, like I don't really care which gels I use. I just like the ones that taste good. So I will use, I really like the precision gel now. I think it's like just super easy and it's also 30 grams. The Morton gel is very good. It's just very expensive. Um, and Endurance Tap, they're sort of my three go-to. <clears throat> and yeah. I, can, I can get through three, you know, precision gels per hour, one every 20 minutes, that's 90 grams an hour with absolutely no problems at all. Okay. And so it's you, just, and you're even, you know, I practice that. And you're mixing and matching too, right? You got those three. So like you could, you can mix and match even in the same, in the you same do that. Yeah, yeah. Because then you come down to palatability. Like, I mean, I, I haven't done an Ironman, mm. but I can imagine if I'm running a marathon after being on a bike for, you know, five, whatever hours, I'm probably going to want to mix up what's going down, down my hatch. Like, you know, 11 hours or 10 hours. I'd hate to think how long an Ironman would actually take me. But, um, you know, for let's say 11 hours of eating exactly the same product, it's not going to happen. Like, that, you know. It's funny, I, man. I, when I was in university, we used to, 
we had a meal hall and we used to sit down and we would, uh, it was all you could eat. And so you would basically check your ticket for the day. You could go and you could eat as much as you want. So a bunch <laughs> of the guys that I used to live with, we would have these eating competitions. And so one day we had a taco eating competition and, uh, I got up to 17 tacos and <laughs> we basically, we basically like tapped out and I, I was there and I was like, you know, what? I'm, I want to get something else to eat. I just can't eat another taco. Like I wanted something else to eat. Yeah. It just wasn't a taco. So I went back and got like something else to eat. It was kind of funny, but that's, that's right. So if you're in like a, a long distance event like that, like it's like if you had taco flavor, you'd want maybe like chicken flavor as well. And just eating something else Can you imagine eating taco flavored gels? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> I'd probably brutal. really like that. It'd be brutal. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, but well, I mean, and this comes back to like training the gut. So the way in which we'll often lay out the plan as well is like, it might be gel, gel blocks. Then it might be, yeah. that might be in the first hour or it might be, you know, gel, gel, gel blocks and then gel, gel, gel bar. And, and often like depending on the athlete and obviously the distance, I'll quite often encourage a bar to be used at some point just to mm -hmm. break it up. Um, they may not use a whole bar, but they may just use something like a picky bar or something like that that is a little bit more calorie dense. So it instantly yep. increases the amount of calories that they're getting in, but just gives a little bit. And look, that's primarily through probably a little bit more fat, but you certainly don't want to eat a lot of fat on the race because you're going fast and that's going to cause all sorts of issues. But it, it might just break up that monotony of that glucose sort of trail through the mouth as well. And yep. I think that's a really no, important like point as well. Like that. So let's talk about like, once you've got the training down, you've got that all figured out. There's a component of getting ready for a race and old theory really talked about the idea of carb loading. And then now there's research that's sort of pointing to fueling during the event versus carb loading. So can you talk a little bit about the carb loading side of it and, and where that came from and, and how it's transitioning to fueling during the event? Yeah. And I, well, I can say there's a recent article in Triathlete Magazine, uh, actually the print copy, where we just did a big article on carb loading, which is okay. um, <clears throat> which is really cool. And we went through the history of it, and I won't bore anyone too much with the actual you know historical state of it. But it was you know Swedish researchers, and they sort of were investigating this notion of high carb, well, you know, glycogen depletion first, and you go through this low carbohydrate state, and then you do. Uh, I think it was originally five five days of high carbohydrate loading uh, in order to increase uh, endogenous glycogen stores, so in the liver and the muscle, and that was shown to increase, you know, um, your capacity to increase glycogen stores by up to two hundred percent. So okay. the theory of carbohydrate loading is that you can maximize the body's storage of glycogen through consumption of high amounts of carbohydrates and the theory okay. behind that is therefore you have more glycogen which therefore should help you produce more power more speed for a longer period of time at an exercise intensity that requires the predominant use of carbohydrates okay so so then that's the carb loading side of it so but well, but it then changed. So then more research came out that actually you don't need to do like the glycogen depletion. You don't need to do low days of carbohydrates. You can probably maximize carbohydrate or glycogen stores just by sort of 24 to maybe 48 hours of high carbohydrate loading. And when we're talking about high carbohydrate loading, we're 
talking sort of, you know, eight, eight to 12 grams of carbs per kilo of body weight in those days okay. leading up. And, you know, yes, it's old. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about like some of the research that talks about, I mean, firstly, you can talk to me about like, you know, where not using carbohydrate loading may be a case. But I think not doing that, I would be like, you know, seri- I wouldn't recommend to an athlete to go low carb prior to a race. I think, I think no. it would be silly. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense, especially, you know, what we're talking about. But, you know, th- there is, I mean, at some point, those, even those carbohydrate stores that would be built up for, from a carb loading, you know, just before the race, they're going to burn, they're not going to maintain you through the whole race. So that's why that fueling during the race becomes ultimately important as well, right? Because you've got to, you've got to use those initial ones to get you, get you moving, but then the, the ones you're consuming during the race are keeping you going. Absolutely. So that, that's where yeah. like this whole, you know, exogenous feeding comes from. So like the whole idea is that if you can take in large amounts of exogenous or consume carbohydrates, you can then keep your blood sugars fairly stable, which therefore means that you could potentially, and what they're showing is that stored muscle glycogen is then spared. And if you can spare Mm. muscle glycogen for as long as possible, or at least reduce the amount of it and the rate at which it's being used, then you can imagine you get off the bike, you go into the marathon or the half marathon, depending on what the, the length of the race is, you're going to be yep. in such a better position than the person who is utilizing all their stored carbohydrates on the bike, gets off the bike, their legs feel like absolute crap, and they're like, oh, my God, I've got to run now. Whereas, you know, yeah. what we're seeing practically, we're seeing our, our athletes who, especially the ones who are getting up into the 90, 120 grams an hour, they're off the bike and they're like, man, I felt fresh. Yeah, because you're using the, the, the carbs you're pushing through the body as opposed to the stores in the muscles. That's correct. Uh, correct. And that's and a big the, one. There's a there is also a neural drive here. We know that carbohydrate can reduce the rate of perceived exertion. It's stimulating the brain, and that's where you know whether we get into it or not. That's where the whole mouth rinsing sort of stuff comes from. It's it's a neural drive as much as anything, and so carbohydrates are going to play like from a central drive perspective to an actual physiological perspective, they're going to be doing you a lot of favors. Again, if you're going at an intensity that requires them to be used. Okay. So we got to, we got to jump on this because you, you mentioned this before you talked about this mouth rinse carbohydrate fueling, which I've never heard of before. So you, you got to explain this one. So mouth rinse, I mean, it's one of those ones where you can use, we used to always talk about it, using it for fatty athletes. Um, because you don't want them taking in carbs. Um, Effectively, what you're doing is swishing a high concentrated carbohydrate solution around in the mouth. You do it uh, for 10 seconds and you do it repeatedly every 15 minutes. And over, you know, periods of uh, high exertion and decent amounts of time, you can have comparable results to actually ingesting the same, well, carbohydrates. Like it's... It's used way more in intermittent type sports. So think football, uh, soccer, or what people call soccer, hockey, things like that. If you didn't want to actually consume the carbohydrate. Um, Would I recommend it to triathletes as a strategy to get through an entire race? Um, 
probably dependent on the race. I think for a sprint, maybe, maybe you could. Um, again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but you could potentially do it. But it, it could be one of those strategies that an athlete could use if they physically can't swallow anything. So you imagine, I'm sure you've been in that situation where you've been in the race and your gut may be churning and you're just not feeling good. It could be that opportunity to grab a Gatorade, swish it around in the mouth 10 seconds and then spit it out. And it could, well, it should actually help you continue going at that rate at which you're going, um, depending obviously on a number of factors, like if you're cramping in terms of your guts and stuff like that. But it, it is an effective strategy and it's been studied, you know, fairly extensively. So, so what is actually happening? Is, is there like some sort of absorption through the, through the skin and the mouth? Or is it literally your brain is, you're tasting it and your brain is reacting as if you're eating it? Uh, oh God, you're going to get me on the, the physiology. There's some sacs, uh, some <laughs> glands in the mouth. I think they're called buccal, buccal glands. I'll probably get pulled up on this. But it is... I think you're absorbing um, like the – I think there's some absorption of carbohydrate through the mouth. Um, okay. But what it is is stimulating the neural drive, so the nervous system, to light up the areas in the brain that are perceiving that you're actually getting carbohydrates. And then that's doing like a central drive down into the body, which then gives you that perception of, okay, I feel great. I've actually had something sweet. And so you're able to continue going. Um, I've probably completely butchered that. And, uh, but no, someone, no, but it's, it's someone the theory. Will do the it. But that, that's the theory of it. The theory sounds, it sounds like some sort of like survival hack that I would be like, if I'm out and I'm, I know I have like a, a 24 hour journey to get back to where I am because my plane crashed and I only have like one bottle of Gatorade. I just like put it in my mouth and swish it around and I keep spitting it back in the bottle so I could like <laughs> actually make it back to where I needed to go. Um, that's yeah, I don't, a, I don't know if you, it's actually, that's very interesting. Yeah, I don't think anyone ever actually keeps the product that they spit out. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I, might, I might do it. Yeah, yeah but it, it's probably, it could keep you alive, you never know. So, um, definitely. it's, I mean, you, you go back though, like, let, let's talk about like, um, yeah, you talk about carb loading and you talk about like there might be all this sort of like theory about like, oh, is it required now? And people are maybe saying, oh, carb loading's outdated. You don't need to do it. You know, like uh, James Morton, great researcher, you know, great, you know, practical clinician. He, he had two studies come out of his PhD students this year, which were just so cool. Um, one, so what was it, 2022, um, the students highlighted that reduced effort and capacity to produce peak power output when muscle glycogen stores were lower and when they were lower than what we call 300 millimoles of wet muscle. Um, now, you're not going to be able to uh, effectively tell if you're less than 300 millimoles, but what they did was they, they did a glycogen depleting session in the evening. They then did three types of diet. So one group had zero carbs, one had moderate, which is, I think, was around 3.2 grams per kilo body weight. And then the higher amount of carbohydrates, I think, was around 7 grams per kilo body weight. And then um, they consumed that. And they did that six hours before going to bed. They then slept. They then, in the morning, they did like a maximal capacity to test. Um, and the 
what they were looking at was because you you hear about all these sleep low train low type protocols i don't know if you've heard about that stuff yep you, yep yep we had somebody on talk about that yep okay so they were looking at those markers because james was one of the like you know the guys who started that whole investigation um, and research sort of standpoint. But what they found was like all the physiological markers were pretty similar between the groups. Um, but what they did found is that um, they, they just couldn't produce the amount of peak power if you had the reduced muscle glycogen. So if you're effectively what it's saying is that maybe all those physiological markers that are related to like glycogen depletion and then sleeping low and then training low, they're all the same regardless if you're consuming carbs or not. But the take-home message was the practical output, i.e. the ability to perform like a lot of exercise was reduced in the groups that took on lower amounts of carbs. Yeah. And so okay. what, what you're looking at there is the practical implications of that are simply – if you want to do a lot of training at high intensity the following day, you need to be consuming carbs the day before. Like that is it. And so in a practical sense where a lot of people get it wrong is like, and we were talking, I was talking about this with um, one of the, the coaches that I work with, Elizabeth Impen. We were like, what athletes will see is on a Friday, they've got like, you know, a light run or a light swim or something like that. And they'll, eat very low amounts of carbohydrates on that day. But then Saturday is their big day at race pace or race effort and they they completely bomb it because they haven't looked forward in their week and their training plan and actually thought, okay, I need to eat a lot of carbs on this day in order to fuel the following day. So it's never just in the moment. And I know everyone talks about being in the moment and being present and all those things these days, but actually... <laughs> You need to think about the future sometimes. Yep. So when you're talking about, you know, carbohydrates before the day of the race, I'm assuming your fueling app is not going to tell me to start packing in gels before the day before the race. What's a good source uh, pre-race? It used to be like, hey, ate a big bowl of spaghetti or something like that, but I don't know if it's that's still a, It's still a good source. <laughs> is it? Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, carbs are carbs. Well, carbs aren't carbs, I guess. There are lots of different carbs, as we discussed. But um, so generally leading up, what we'll generally propose is, you know, those 48 hours leading up, you start to increase. So, you know, aiming probably around five, five and a half grams per kilo body weight of carbohydrates sort of two days out, um, which is, you know, it is higher, but it's not like super high. Um, you want to start to reduce fiber intake at that point in time and depending if you get a lot of gi distress you may want to consider reducing fodmaps uh, so they're those fermentable type carbohydrates that can cause some people to have gi sort of distress um, due to the fermentation yep. process in the gut i think you've had other people on talking about fodmaps um yep. uh, so you want to start to reduce those so what are you thinking you're thinking okay slightly more processed food so you know breakfast you might be starting to think okay Rice Krispies are pretty good. We call them rice bubbles in Australia. Um, and any type of cereal that is actually pretty bad for you is probably a good choice um, at that point in time. Um, bread, so you could go with like white breads, um, maybe not completely white breads 48 hours out, but certainly reducing fiber intake with that. You're then thinking rice, rice is low fiber, pasta, low fiber, um, depending on your, if you're gluten intolerant, obviously you're going to be choosing rice is a great choice. 
gluten-free breads is a good choice. Um, you're working into that. You'd certainly consider, you now I talked about FODMAPs and reducing those, you would consider consuming some fructose, so some types of fruit that don't affect you, so you would want to know that. So things like banana or mango um, can be good choices as long as they don't affect you. Uh, and then keeping, you know, from a carbohydrate perspective, you're going to continue doing that and you're eating with a purpose. So I think the other thing, John, is like you're not eating gourmet food. Like you're eating yeah. very plain pastas, very plain rice with the point of getting large volumes of these types of carbohydrates into you. And depending on how big you are, like if you're a 80 kilo individual and the day before the race, you've got to get in eight grams per kilo of body weight. Yeah, you're talking half a kilo, uh, which is yeah. what, um, what's that, 2.2? Uh, so what's that, four? It's like six six pounds, is that right? right? Yeah, not quite. roughly. Something like that. Um, you know, it's a, it's a lot of carbohydrates. So you may want to use liquid carbs as well. So some form okay. of sports drink and stuff like that at that point in time. 24 hours out is probably going to be fine. Again, you will have practiced this um, leading up and practiced this in training so that you know exactly, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing leading into a race. And this is how I'm going to get the amount of carbohydrates in that I need to get in by eating these types of foods. Okay, that makes sense. So let's say that you don't train your gut. You don't, uh, you don't you know, take any of the advice that you listened to here today. What are some of the issues that you can expect during a race? We've talked about like, you know, GI issues, but what are they? What's sort of the broader spectrum of, of, of issues you can have? Yeah, I mean, you're probably going to start to feel pretty sick if you're taking huge amounts of carbs and you're just not used to it. Um, so those symptoms, you, you have upper GI symptoms. So that could be uh, burping, belching. Um, you could get regurgitation. You could vomit. Um, they're sort of the upper GI symptoms. Then you get your lower GI symptoms, which is like that feeling of fullness. Uh, then it could be nausea. It could be cramping. Um, it could be flatulence or farting. And then it, it could ultimately be diarrhea. Um, and that need okay. or that urge to go to the toilet. And so that urge to go to the toilet could then obviously stop you. You might have to go to the side of the road or into a porta potty. Um, and then you could be just stuck in there with, you know, chronic diarrhea. So, okay. yeah, not, not, not very fun. nice. Not nice. <laughs> not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So let's, we're going to ask this last question here, which is our what point question. You know, we've asked that uh, on every, every episode. Last time we asked you in a specific way, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of modify this one just a little bit. So let's assume that uh, this is a, this is an athlete that is a, uh, has got a, a decent FTP, let's say 300 Watts, and they haven't done any sort of carb training or anything like that. And they go to a race and they are having GI issues. So basically, you know, they're going to not be able to maintain that 300 watt FTP at all. It's going to drop. Let's say somebody then goes into a race and they've done some sort of carb training and carb loading with it. They would be able to maintain the 300 watts. So if they didn't do the training, there's going to be a loss. So what, what loss do you think that they would see if they didn't properly train themselves from a, for a, uh, taking in carbohydrates? Well, it depends how bad that <laughs> the GI distress gets because, I mean, ultimately it goes to zero when they have to stop. Right. Um, you know, and that's, unfortunately, that's what, 
so often we see and you know athletes coming on the program they're like literally i didn't finish the race and i think a dnf is just the worst isn't it like you spend yeah. months and months training and then you don't even finish the race because you shit yourself and it's like yeah you know, it's like <laughs> wow that could have potentially been avoided and you know yeah so i mean ultimately it's probably zero <laughs> like okay. for someone right. who doesn't do it that's where i'd probably lay it because if they if they get issues that bad they, they're just not going to finish and that sucks and i think it's it's terrible yeah. so perfect man well i'm going to add that in there as a little asterisk on this one because it's a kind of a unique question to ask um i guess we could ask it another way too you know if you if you were able to properly sort of carb load and and take in the proper nutrition do you believe that it could add to that 300 watt ftp in any way well then then yeah i guess that's the the real question is is that um you know that 300 watts i guess is were they optimally fueled and were they training with optimal carbohydrate stores in order to produce that ftp in the first place because if that was under fueled and then they go through and the testing was way before they really got into sort of, you know, learning how to use carbohydrates as a maximal or an optimal source, then potentially that FTP could be, yeah, could be higher or above uh, in the actual race situation. So, you know, you never know, it could be actually better than that. And or sitting at that FTP could be then very comfortable and they, they could do that. So let's reason. look at it that way. If they were underfueled, right, and they got an, a 300 watt FTP, but then you were able to properly fuel them, what would you say? It was five percent bump, ten percent bump? What do you think? Oh, hard to say. <laughs> hard to say. All right. Maybe. I mean, maybe five, ten percent. I don't know. It's. Uh, I think. I think the thing that. Well, let, let's put it another way. It would probably be much easier to maintain. So the okay. maintenance of that ability, like, and I think that's what coaches talk about a lot. Is like it's that consistency, isn't it? Like, what yeah. were you consistently holding? in that effort and like i always know whenever i talk to the athletes who you know do the best in their races they're like man i just nailed it i held my power yep. the entire time and it was just yep. clockwork and you know i fed every 15 minutes and it was just like i was like gel gel blocks gel gel blocks and they're like <laughs> my power just sustained and i got off the bike and i felt like a bull and you're like that's awesome that's awesome Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Scott. You're again, wealth of knowledge. Uh, enjoy that little boy of yours. I know we're definitely enjoying ours here. So uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to keep in touch and uh, best of luck with fueling, man. But uh, thanks for this. Uh, people are going to love this one. Awesome, John. Thanks for listening to Faster. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Leave a review or teach a friend what you learned today. For more great episodes on getting faster, subscribe to this podcast. While you're on your next ride, be kind to one another and ride safe.